Romans chapter 6. Be in Romans chapter 6 tonight. It has uh, come to my attention that the pastor, Brother Abel, who is at First Baptist Wiggins, had a heart attack this morning in the pulpit. Um, and I don't know any details other than he's in Forest General. Um, so I don't know if any of you have connection to him in any way. I know some people have connections to that church and know him. and uh, So we want to have a moment of prayer on behalf of him and his family in that church. And you can just imagine uh, what a... Uh, just what a catastrophic event that is for a congregation as well as for him and his family, of course. But to be a very, very tough situation. So will you pray with me and let's, let's pray for that congregation, that situation. Father, right now we come before you, Lord, and we lift up Pastor Abel to you. We thank you, God, for the call upon his life and for his faithfulness to preach your word. And Father, we don't know all the details, God, but we know you do. And Father, we don't call on any other name. We call on your name. We call on the name of Jesus to intervene, to touch, to heal, to comfort, to bring peace, Lord. We pray that you would use this uh, circumstance for your glory, Lord. We pray that, Father, the church would be strengthened through this time of trial. We pray, God, that uh, as he recovers, Father, that he would be a testimony of your goodness and your grace and mercy and, and just the, the comfort that only you can bring, Lord. We pray for his family. We pray, God, for the congregation, Lord. We pray that the witness of you would be bold and wonderful and glorious through this time of struggle. And, Father, we just pray as their brothers and sisters in the Lord, that, God, if there's any way that we may be a blessing to them, that we would do so. And, Father, will you please use your Holy Spirit to prick our hearts daily to lift up this situation, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. Now, God, we pray that you would use your word to illuminate our minds and hearts, God, that you would take this wonderful truth before us tonight and you would use it in a magnificent way, Father. Thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Romans chapter 6. Last week, we spent some time together in... Uh, Psalm 86, and we talked about uh, the struggle of worship, that there are times in our life when we will struggle to come before the Lord in, in worship. And I've been uh, just studying uh, for several weeks on this issue of struggle. We want to continue to talk a little bit about that tonight, but I just want to kind of clue you in a little bit. Um, for those of you that are are really sharp and intuitive, you'll, you'll be able to see that tonight we're going to build a bridge tonight that will lead us to uh, not this coming Sunday, but the Sunday after that. When we get to the text in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus is going to, uh, actually the next one, we'll do part two of this morning next week, and then the following week we'll talk about uh, where Jesus speaks of, you will know a tree by its fruit. And so tonight is really going to help you. It'll build a bridge to that message. And so, as always, I encourage you to, to take notes and write things down in your Bible as we um, dissect this passage of Scripture. Anytime that we are uh, dealing with a passage written by the Apostle Paul, especially if we're in the book of Romans. Paul is, is the most methodical, logical thinker, and he stacks all of his thoughts one upon another, and they sequentially unravel the truth in which he's trying to communicate. And so it's important to uh, take notes and to write things down and to help you when you uh, come across this text later on in your studies. So just a, a, a quick recap to help you understand where we are when we jump into Romans chapter 6, because obviously we've missed five chapters of information. And boy, is it a lot of information. And I really got thinking about this on Wednesday night, listening to uh, Brother John tie this correlation between Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 14. And the way those two 
come together and it just began to uh, just work in me. And so I began to just go through the book of Romans and look at this issue of struggling. And so basically the first three chapters of Romans, to really sum it up in a very succinct way, is really uh, about the fact that we as people are sinful by nature and doomed apart from God and that uh, we were born in sin. And so Paul goes into great detail to make sure that that uh, his readers understand their sinful condition. And then he transitions as we go into chapter 4 of the book of Romans and we begin to see this revelation that there's a solution to our sin. And Paul makes this very famous statement about Abraham believed upon God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he begins to give us this inclination that there's a solution in faith and in believing. And so when we get to Romans 5, we see Paul explaining what it was that Abraham believed in that was counted unto him as faith. And we see that this faith is based upon Christ and His atoning work upon the cross. And so this is sort of what launches us into Romans chapter 6. And this passage of Scripture can be extremely beneficial if you understand it. And uh, most people just sort of bypass it. It's not one of these Scriptures like we dealt with this morning that's often misquoted or misused. People just ignore this altogether because it tends to fly over their head. But it really is very logical and uh, relatively simple once you dive into it. So let's begin in Romans 6, verse 1, and let's allow the Apostle Paul to begin to uh, teach us. Romans 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you know, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all, But the life that he lived, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a mouthful. But I assure you that as you begin to uh, go through this, hopefully together God will begin to uh, help us in this very, very important understanding. There are so many things here that cause so many people to struggle. Paul begins with this rhetorical question, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And a rhetorical question is simply, it's like the question Donnie asked that no one answered. He expected us to answer it, but it really wasn't, uh, you know, we were all just standing there because we didn't know if you wanted to, if it was rhetorical or not. And a rhetorical question is just one that you just don't expect somebody to, to answer. And so I thought about, uh, Some examples of rhetorical questions. So, you know, you just use the uh, wonderful power of the Internet to find examples of rhetorical questions. And I found these. Uh, Question number one, why is a person who plays a piano called a pianist, but a person who drives a race car is not called a racist? Why is the man who invests all your money called a broker? If nothing ever sticks to Teflon... How do they make Teflon stick to the pan? If lawyers are disbarred and clergymen defrocked, doesn't it follow that electricians can be delighted, musicians can be denoted, cowboys can be deranged, models can be deposed, tree surgeons can be debarked, and dry cleaners will be depressed? (laughs) Amen. My dry cleaner's not depressed. He's laughing all the way to the bank. With my money. Amen. 
So Paul opens with this rhetorical statement. He's built a case in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus Christ offers our way of salvation. Okay? Now, these seem like simple truths until we really begin to ask ourselves some difficult questions. For example, this when he replies in verse 2, certainly not. I want you to understand that this is a horrible rendering of the the actual language that he used. The problem is we really don't have any way to communicate what Paul is saying. This is the strongest possible language within the Greek, in entire Greek language that someone could use to say no way or there's utterly no way. Or I think the, the Tony translation would say, are you crazy? I think that's what it should say there. Are you out of your mind? Because Paul is not... It's not just sort of, well, certainly not. He is very emphatic in what he's saying here. Now, why? Well, think about uh, the first problem that presents itself with regards to this issue of, shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, Paul has just made a case that, that because of the work, the atoning work on the cross by Jesus Christ, when we sin, it is covered by grace, and grace abounds more and more. But the natural inclination for somebody to think is, well, in that case, once I become a Christian, why don't I just sin it up? Because if there's this unlimited amount of grace, then why wouldn't we just sin all we wanted to? I mean, why, why resist the temptation to sin if it just makes grace abound more and more? Now, that sounds a little ridiculous, but I have had many people say things to me like, well, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I know I'm saved. Really? Yeah. I've had people say things to me like, well, you know, I don't really want to come to church and I don't really plan on coming to church, but I know I'm saved. So what's the difference? I know I'm going to heaven when I die. You see, one of the problems with the way the modern church has really twisted around this issue of salvation is really uh, it, the problem is not just uh, seen directly in the way that people outside the church misunderstand salvation and have all these wrong concepts of salvation. It also, this easy and sort of false believism that's permeated the church is really at the core of all the Christian insecurities. You see, so many, so many of us, our testimony would be that, that, you know, you've, many of you love the Lord, but you've struggled with assurance of salvation. And it, it's a very common problem. I would say that I was asked in one of my classes one time, what, what was the most common problem that I dealt with? And the first thing that came to my mind was, Assurance of salvation. That's probably the most common pastoral question that I get. And it's, it's rampant. And you know what? This text right here will absolutely put that to sleep for you once and for all if you will allow God to use it in your life and receive the truth that's here. It will just open up an entirely new world to you. Because he says, now, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Now, the, the, notice the, the language here. How shall we who died? Now, you want to make sure that you have a Bible translation if you have something that's not the New King James or the ESV that says died. Because it needs to, 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 to say a past tense event, not dying or not, you know, but it's clearly the word is died. That is important because this is where the confusion comes in. Because when you hear that now, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? That sounds great as long as I'm saying that from up here. But what happens when you say that in the reality of your life and you begin to realize, wait a minute, does the fact that I struggle does the fact that I am tempted by sin, does the fact that my spiritual walk is marked by ups and downs, does that negate my salvation? Because Paul says, we who died to sin. And you see, when you begin to think about this, 
I don't think that we walk around sort of in this confidence and this assurance that as believers, we have died to sin. Because it almost seems like by saying that, that somehow we are claiming to live in perfection. And we know that Paul is not saying that. Although there are many people who will uh, who write books and who preach sermons and who lead entire denominations who do believe in this false doctrine of perfectionism. There are many famous Christian people who believe that they have achieved a level in their life where they no longer sin. Now, you know, it really doesn't take long to sort of dismantle that whole idea now, does it? I mean, beyond our own experience as believers, if you just take one simple glance at the New Testament, for example, in 1 John 1, 8, where the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, so much for that. I mean, there went perfectionism, right? It's gone. It's, it's not there. You and I are not going to achieve any level of perfection on this earth, in this flesh. It ain't going to happen. It's going to be a war and it's going to be a battle. But Paul says, we're dead to sin. So you see, the question is, what does this mean? What is this communicating to you and me? How does this help us? And this sort of comes back to those of you that when I did that uh, that uh, session on the doctrine of salvation, and then many of you heard about that, and I printed out those handouts with all the scriptures, and so many people were asking questions. And because the thing is, is when you understand the doctrine of salvation, it frees you to live as a believer. It's this unbelievable freedom that... Sad to say, many Christians have never heard, never heard. All they've ever heard is, you know, repent of your sin, give your heart to Jesus, you'll be saved once and for all, and that's it. And then just kind of go to church until you get to heaven. But, you know, that, that's just incomplete. There's just things missing there. Because the reality is, is that in the daily grind of life, we struggle. To be Christian is to struggle. It just is. Now... To be lost is not necessarily to struggle. You know, because I, I remember vividly being lost because I was a, a, an adult man lost. And I remember uh, how sin affected me. And trust me, I wasn't walking around mourning over my sin. I wasn't. I, I wasn't giving it two thoughts. But let me tell you, it's not that way now. And this is what Paul is starting to sort of get at. See, let, let me just explain a couple of things. First of all, here's what Paul would say to you or to me if we were struggling with this assurance of salvation or if we were struggling with victory in Christ or victory in our walk with the Lord. Here's the simple, logical process that he would take us through. He would say, number one, what I want you to understand is that we were all born into sin. All of us were born in Adam. All of us were born sinners. That's step one. That is our natural tendency is to sin. That's how you and I entered this world, okay? Romans chapter 1. Then Paul would begin to move us into, by faith, we can be born again. Now, what we have to understand is, well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that you've been justified. There's this initial process in salvation called justification where the sinner is declared righteous. Now, this is a huge, this is a huge moment, okay? In the moment that you become a Christian, you are justified once and for all in this singular moment where God declares you as the righteous judge, righteous. Now, his, where did this righteousness come from? This is a huge debate in Christianity right now. Probably the one thing I'm most concerned about in current modern American theology is this attack against the imputed righteousness of Christ. If you were born a sinner, if I was born a sinner, and then I'm reborn and justified, here's the question, where did the righteousness come from? And here's what the new theology is going to try to teach you. Because you're going to hear this. 
You're going to hear people on the radio, people that you've trusted. You're going to read books. You're going to hear people talking about that this righteousness, that God unlocked it from within you. No. Listen. No. No, no. We were born depraved, wicked sinners. At the moment of justification... We are declared righteous and it is Christ's righteousness that has been imputed or placed into you and me. Now, clearly, it just seems so irrefutable, but I'm telling you, it is a rampant attack. So my first response to that is always, well, he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of Christ. Now, I don't know how you could get out of that passage of Scripture that somehow he who knew no sin became sin for me and unlocked the righteousness that was in me. No, no. It was His righteousness. The righteousness I have is His. So when God looks down upon you as a believer, this is very important. When He looks down as and sees you as a believer, what does He see? The righteousness, but what righteousness? Christ's righteousness. You see, so as you begin to think about this in the context of struggling, think about what the glory of the gospel really says about you as a believer. That you are righteous in the righteousness of Christ. Because here's the thing. Think about this. Do you want, do you want to stand before the Lord in some righteousness that was unlocked from inside of you? Because I don't. There's no way. The only hope I have of ever seeing heaven is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty and therefore I am now declared righteous because of Him. Okay, I'm just chasing rabbits. But it's important. It's important. I don't want you to struggle. I I just hear my heart. I don't want anyone in this room to struggle with assurance of your salvation. I, I want that to die tonight in you. I really do. That is my sincere prayer. And I'm trying to equip you to be able to help others who struggle. Okay, so let's go through this. So, so Paul says, so it's us. Now, how shall we who have died? So there has been a death. All right. Uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know this passage of Scripture. Therefore, now, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, Paul says that something has died, and yet we have become a new creation. Now, how do these two things work together? How does this sort of play out? Let's follow through Paul's logic here. Verse 3. He says, after explaining that something's died within us, Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus? We'll just stop right there. Now think about this. Do you not know that you were baptized into Christ Jesus? Here again, constant problem in people interpreting the Scripture. You see the word baptized and you get all off track. Okay? Listen. There's lots of places in the Scripture where baptism is mentioned. And you know what's not mentioned? Water. There's no water in Romans chapter 6. None. Okay? So don't get in any ideas about some weird baptism. Okay? That's not what this is. The word baptizo means to be immersed. So you just think about this. Or do you not know... That many of you were immersed into Christ Jesus. You see? You, just like we, when, when the Bible talks about you, we say we were baptized by fire. We were not set ablaze. Right? No. It means we were immersed in a trial. Right? So don't get tangled up with people who want to take this scripture and many other scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts, and they want to take baptism and tangle it all around, and they want to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the second baptism or some other baptism. No. 
And here, here's another thing. When it comes to baptism and you're reading the Bible, you just understand what baptism means. Look at the passage of Scripture. See the context. Is anybody in water? Is that what's going on? And, and you know, I understand that there are many church traditions concerning baptism, and we need to be sensitive to those because here, here's the thing that I think people oftentimes forget. The Bible does not teach infant baptism. The Bible does not teach any sprinkling or any... But, but here's the thing we got to understand. When you or I encounter someone who is from a belief system where they were baptized as an infant, we need to remember that that wasn't their idea. They didn't come up with that. Okay? They were in a church and in a denomination and in a system that taught that. So don't start bashing them about baptism. Okay? Be understanding. They didn't think about it. Okay? It wasn't their idea. I mean, we just need to be sensitive to that. I just want to throw that in. So, we're immersed in Christ Jesus. Now, the significance here of this term is that it's it's to, to make overwhelmed. In other words, when something's baptized, it's overwhelmed by something else. So we've been overwhelmed by Christ Jesus. And then we were baptized into His death. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we were immersed into His death, okay, what function occurred in the death of Christ? He died for the forgiveness of our sin. Are you with me? So, we've been baptized into forgiveness. In other words, we identify, we have unity with Christ in His death. Meaning, we are forgiven. So, the believer is forgiven of all their transgressions. Okay, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Now, notice how now Paul turns the table and says, now, wait a minute, not only are we baptized into His death, but now, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we now should walk in newness of life. So now, we are connecting with what? His resurrection. Now, what was, the, what was functionally... A, what functionally happened at the resurrection? It was victory over sin, right? So now the believer is identified with Christ in forgiveness and identified with Christ in victory over sin. Now we're beginning to see this picture of what exactly died within us. You see, Paul is just systematically moving you closer to what he wants you to grasp, what the reality of salvation is. And so there is forgiveness through death. There is victory through resurrection. We've been baptized into both of those positions. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, that to me, Romans 6, 5, that ought to be one of those glorious passages that we run around quoting all the time because there is this amazing truth there. But you see, because it sort of doesn't sound like it flows right, or the way that, that, that Paul uses his words and his syntax, it gets a little tangled up. But it is a glorious, unbelievable truth for, for somebody who is struggling to realize, wait a minute, I've been, I've been immersed into the death of Christ in forgiveness, the resurrection of Christ in victory. And so through our union with Christ... The body of sin has been destroyed. Now, well, I mean, what does this mean? What, what does it mean, the body of sin? Like, for example, in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, just some things I want to point out. First of all, what is this term, the old man? What does that mean? In other words, well, let's start simple. You know you didn't physically die at salvation, right? Because you're here. So, I mean, that takes care of that one. So, the old man is not this old man as you're looking at it now. So, that's not what Paul's talking about. So, what is this old man? It is our old nature. In other words, the, the old nature that Romans chapter 1 says we were all born with. 
Because you have to, you have to know where you came from to understand where you are. And that's sort of the process that, that tangles people up in salvation. We need to know that the old man, this old nature, this old disposition, not the flesh, the nature, the disposition is no longer, it's old. It's no longer useful. It's no longer of any value. That has been crucified with him. In other words, something inside of you at the moment of salvation was killed. Now, what was that? How does that work? I mean, how does that affect you and I in our daily walk with the Lord? How do we reconcile that with the struggle that we constantly face? You see, because even tonight as we were singing, that the one line in the, the song that we sang, I guess just prior to the hymn, something about always, that we always... How did that go? Does anybody remember? That we would always desire Him. or And, and I, as we were singing it, I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking, well, you know, that is true. But it's not always every day, every moment of every day now, is it? Because here's the thing. You see, it is true in the context of the song that always the believer will come back to the desire for Him. But let's face it. One of our big problems is that we don't want to be real with each other. We, we don't want to admit that. There are just simply days where we just don't want it. There are simply times when righteousness is not our top agenda. And we're just not, it's not the easy thing. It's not the convenient thing. It's just not the fun thing. It's just, we just don't want to do it. You see, the old man part that, that, that he says died is dead. So it's not that part. Because Paul says that part is dead. Something that's dead can't start, you know, coming back and wanting to do something inside of you. So what is it? It's the flesh. But the old nature is dead. And so it's been replaced with this new creation, this new nature. So the new man lives incarcerated in the old flesh. You all right? You with me? So this new man is now in the prison cell of our flesh. But, you know, that that sounds a little bit like bad news, but it's not bad news. I mean, it's going to get better, but it's not bad news. Now, notice a couple things. I, I want you to see that the Bible never tells us to put off the old man. Never. And why? It's dead. Now, this is a huge problem today for people who battle with insecurity about their position in Christ. Because it's dead. The Bible says it is done, buried. The dirt's been covered. It's over. Grass is growing. It's done, dead. The funeral's long gone. It's not coming back. There's no resurrection of the old man. It's over. It is. So no matter how much you're struggling, no matter how much you feel like, well, anyone who would think or feel the things I'm thinking or feeling just can't be saved. Listen, if you're saved, it's dead. So, verse 6, knowing that the old man was crucified with him, second part, that the body of sin might be done away with. What does this mean? The body of sin. Well, you know how somebody might say, well, uh, we were we went on vacation and I just stood before this vast body of water. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that there was somebody there whose body was made out of water? Or if I say, what I want you to do is study that whole body of truth. Does that mean there's somebody made out of truth? So then what is the body of sin? The whole body of sin. In other words, the entire, whatever you want to call it, the entire encompassing amount of sin. The body of sin is the totality of sin. Now, that the body of sin might be done away with. So this old man has been crucified, cannot come back. Then the totality of sin that once plagued you prior to salvation, that has been done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, that phrase done away with, see, you can just write in your Bible right there that that little phrase, it means Deprived of its controlling power. So the the totality of sin that once plagued you and I 
has now been deprived of its controlling power. It's been done away with that you and I should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, again, it begs the question, well, what, what is a slave? Well, just the most simple, random uh, dictionary would lead you to something like a slave is a person entirely under the domination of some influence or person. Okay? The Bible says that you and I, as of the moment of salvation, are no longer slaves to sin. Now, does it feel like that? I mean, see, herein's the problem. The Bible says this clear as a bell. But then our experience tends to be a little bit different. Because when we sin, we like to at least convince ourselves that we're slaves to it. Now, there's, there's a lot of areas where this really shows its ugly head. Normally, the, the most prominent place where this issue of being a slave to sin will come in will has to do with sexual immorality. If you've ever sat and talked with a young man or even a young woman who was just utterly and completely uh, just immersed in an addiction to pornography, you would have a great understanding of what this uh, picture this paints in your head. I mean, it gets it, it, it is it just gets inside of you and it just begins to absolutely rip people to pieces. And here's the challenge is that when I sit across from them and I begin to tell them the truth of the Word of God in light of their own experiences, here's where we're going to hit a roadblock. When I say to them, the Bible says that you are no longer a slave to sin. And they just think, you're you're wrong. It may say that, but it doesn't know me. You don't know the problem I face. And I say, oh yes, I do. You're not a slave to that sin. You're not. Now, does that mean that 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 sin is just going to magically disappear? Well, it might, but it probably won't. Does that mean that it's not going to be a battle every day? Well, no, it's going to be a battle. But the deal is, you're not a slave. According to the Bible, the sin of pornography or any other sin has lost its controlling power over you and I in Christ. It's lost the controlling power. See, the, the game has changed because, and here's... The linchpin to all of this. Because at justification, you and I are declared righteous. So there is a declaration of righteousness by God on your behalf. Which institutes the process of sanctification. You see, justification initiates sanctification, which is not declaration, but transformation. Are you lost? Listen, good. Stay, stay with it. Now, listen. Transformation is a process. Justification is a moment. In the process, we as believers daily walk on this journey called sanctification towards likeness to Jesus Christ. And in that process, there are ups and there are downs. And there are a lot of, of things that we do that help and there are things that we do that hinder. I mean, for example, it's just simple things. People say, well, okay, so God says I've been transformed and now I'm in the process of sanctification, so why am I still struggling with this? Well, here's the deal. Listen, if you're struggling with lust or if you're struggling with alcohol, then, you know, don't go in the store and walk down the alcohol aisle. That's just stupidity. If you're struggling with pornography, then don't watch, you know, those nasty shows that are on primetime TV. I mean, you know, don't put yourself in a position to fail. That you, that that sin no longer has power over you and me, but in the process of sanctification, God's given us some common sense. And if we just use a little common sense, we can make our life so much easier. I always say the same thing. I talk to somebody about pornography. I always say the same thing. I always get the same crazy look. I always look at them. I go, they go, what am I going to do? I say, throw your computer out the window. And they go, what? You know, what else you got? I'm like, I don't have anything else. 
Open the window and chunk it out. Rip the cord out of the wall. Set it on fire. Do, I mean, get rid of it. I mean, if you're struggling with something, get away from it. Flee. But for the purpose of this understanding, sanctification is a process. And we're in the process of sanctification, transformation, day in and day out. Now look how this comes to a close and then we'll be done. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Now, you know what this says about you and me? Paul is saying, listen, in this victory, in this victory over sin that we, that we have, our position as saved believers. Now, we've, we've been to justification. That was the moment of our salvation, which initiated this transformation, which is the process of sanctification. But it will culminate in glorification. And what is glorification? Well, glorification is when the flesh, when the new me will no longer be incarcerated in the old flesh. In other words, at glorification, I now get the last piece of the puzzle, which is the glorious new body and no more flesh. Amen. And that's the end of sin forever. It's gone. It's history. It's over. Now, I'm not talking about something that may be true for you. I'm not talking about something that could potentially be your experience. You don't experience, you do not experience justification. It just, it happens in the, in the courts of heaven. But you definitely experience sanctification. You see, here's what happens. You know this to be true. You begin to start, the devil starts working on you about your salvation. Then you just start thinking to yourself, well, what happens when you sin? How do you feel? It hurts, doesn't it? It didn't used to hurt, but it hurts now. And you hate it, don't you? Yeah. And you don't want it, do you? No. And there's something inside of you that longs for righteousness. And for some of us, there's this constant nagging voice of the enemy in our head that we're always sort of falling short and we're always sort of missing the mark. And what he wants to do is come in and marginalize what God has done in your life and start to tell you, well, you know what that means? That means that when you, you didn't really mean it when you did it or you didn't this or you didn't that, as if somehow something you did had something to do with it anyway. I mean, you didn't do it. God did it. He did it. So here's my question. When you begin to struggle, ask yourself, well, how do you respond to sin? Do you hate sin? Do you hate it when you sin? Do you wish you wouldn't sin? Because lost people don't do that. Saved people do that. Sanctified people hate sin. They're not perfect, but they hate sin. I hate sin. I sin and I hate it. I don't want to sin. And you know what? I read the Bible and I love it. And you know what? Every time I get done reading the Bible, do you know what I always think? I didn't read enough. When I get done praying, you know what I always say? I didn't pray enough. When I memorize Scripture, you know what I always say? I didn't memorize enough. But you know why? Because I can't ever get enough. It's not guilt and condemnation. It's just that I want it all. Lord, I want it all. I wish I could just go away on a desert island and just read my Bible and pray for 10 years and maybe I'd have it. But the, what I know to be true is that when I got back, I would still be longing for more because I haven't got to glorification yet. But that day's coming. Listen, you listen, you can't lose something you can't earn. That's impossible. And so when we struggle, when we struggle to worship God, when we struggle to to and, and really if you take anything away from this message, take away number 1 that saved people are saved people. They're saved people. And you know what? If you, if you say tonight, well, well, I just don't know if I'm saved. Well, okay, fine. Then deal with it. In other words, just deal with it. You know, one person that I was helping through this process that was struggling with this, I, took, I said, every time you doubt your salvation, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop what you're doing, drop down to your knees, and just 
ask God to save you. Every time. They're like, what? I said, every time. About a week later, they came up to me. I said, so how's that? It's fixed. I mean, in other words, you see what I'm saying? Just call the devil's bluff. Just do it every time you doubt it. Ask God to save you. There's no harm in that until the doubt dies. But here's the thing. Beyond that, here's what this really becomes valuable for us as a body of believers. That you've been baptized in the victory over sin. So whatever this world throws at you Monday morning, whatever you got to face in your life this week, whatever scenario comes your way, here's the deal. I'm not telling you that it's going to be easy. I'm not telling you that you're, 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 you're just going to jump right over that and it's not going to get you. But here's what I'm telling you. You don't have to give in. You do not have to give in. You have supernatural power to say no to sin. The Bible says that. I don't care what that voice in your head is saying. The Bible says that you have been baptized in the resurrection, the victory of Jesus Christ over sin. And what we need to begin to do is walk in the victory of our salvation. Because that is what's going to unlock all the potential that God has within this body. You see, here's what we know to be true. I mean, I know this because I lived this. I watched this happen before my very eyes. That this morning, when Karen overcame, she overcame the whatever, whatever hurdles, whatever struggles, whatever, whatever situations uh, that the enemy was trying to put before. And she comes forward and she stands before her family and she says, I need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Here's what I know to be true. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that her sanctification is about to go straight up off the chart. I know that. How do I know that? Because just as you can do things to hinder your transformation, you can do unbelievable things to enhance your transformation. And what is the number one thing you can do? Be obedient, especially in the things that you, maybe you don't understand or that you don't have to do. Go the extra mile and watch God gloriously bless your life. I guarantee you that the testimony of somebody who could just easily have sat there for the rest of her life and not said a word to anybody, but who comes forward and says, I need to be baptized. God is going to blow her life up spiritually for the good. It's going to be amazing. I watched God do that in my wife's life. I've watched that God do that time and time again. There's been there's been several of you that are in here tonight that that I prayed with about this very issue and watched you get baptized after you've been in the church for I don't know how long. And what happened? God launched you into all sorts of areas of service and teaching and ministry and opportunity. Why? Because the process of transformation just took off. See, you have the power to call the devil's bluff. And so when you say, well, I don't know what to do, that's not true. You do. Do this. Just do this. Because I'm telling you, even if you're not sure, you're not sure, but this is what the Bible says. I don't understand. Do it. Do it. You remember Naaman in the Old Testament? Leprosy. Dead. No hope. God said, well, you threw the prophet Elisha. He said, you go down the Jordan River, dunk seven times. Naaman said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. You know, here's, here, if Naaman was in our fellowship, he'd go, man, I got baptized when I was a kid. Why am I not doing that again? Naaman said, there's plenty of rivers in my land. Why do I want to? I got cleaner rivers in my homeland in Syria. Why do I want to come here? But God said, dunk in the river seven times. And so he started leaving. And then one of his servants said, you know, Naaman, I mean, I know you're a powerful general and everything, and I know you're a smart guy, but I just got to tell you, this is my own kind of loose translation. What do you got to lose? And he turned his chariot around and went back to the bank of the Jordan, went in there, dunked one, two, three, four, five, six, and on the seventh time, he was cured. Amen. And what does that story teach us? Sometimes God asks us to do things we don't understand. 
sometimes God calls you to do things that don't make a lot of sense to you, but here's the deal. The process of sanctification is a guaranteed process in the life of every believer. Now, if yours is going this way, or if yours is going this way, I guarantee you it has a lot to do with your willingness to just do it this way. But let me tell you something. we got to take comfort in the finished work of the cross. I'm not going to stand before Christ in any other righteousness but His righteousness. And it's guaranteed. It's been imputed upon me. And the devil is powerless against it. And here's the thing. We give him way too much credit. Way too much credit. Because you know what the devil knows that most Christians don't know? Romans chapter 6. The devil knows what I just read to you. But you know what? The old man is dead. You're not a slave to sin any longer. Any longer. We just need to say no. No. And say yes to what God calls us to do. Let's stand and bow our heads. I pray that God uses His Word to heal some areas in your heart, to equip you to help those that you love and care for. And I pray tonight, God, I come before you tonight. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who struggles with doubt, oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help them tonight. Would you speak to them and encourage them? Father, would you have them to wrestle out their own salvation? Lord, ask themselves questions about how they respond to sin. Is there a point in their life where something changed? And you know what? It may not sound like everybody else's conversion story, but something changed. And they've been different ever since. Well, Father, I pray that you'd encourage us in that salvation tonight. I pray, Father, that if there's someone here who's just struggling to cover up the realization that they really never have come humbly before Christ, laid everything down and said, God, will you save me? that tonight that would take place in their life. Father, I know that in this room there's a multitude of people, a multitude of counselors, and they will undoubtedly have time and time again in their life where they will sit across from from another person who is battling this issue. And I pray, Father, that they would would be able to open their Bible to Romans chapter 6, that they would be able to walk with, with their brother and sister through this process. And Lord, they would be able to see the glory of justification and the, the unbelievable transformation that occurs through sanctification, Lord. And until we, God, until we arrive in perfection with you, Lord, may we understand that it's going to be a battle, but the war is truly one. And we thank you for that, Father. So, Lord, will you be glorified in us tonight? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The altar's open if I can pray.